Um, the next section um, is on contracting for data, and Catherine's session was a good segue into that. Um, and from licensing to outsourcing to managed services, um, data is now a big component in most tech-related deals. And in this session, we're going to focus on how market practices and the contract structures that underpin them are evolving to exploit and safeguard data generation, access, and use. Um, and I'd like to welcome to the stage my fellow partners from Kemp Little's commercial technology team, Paul O'Hare and Paul Hinton. Uh, Paul is one of the leading outsourcing experts in the UK and specializes in advising suppliers and customers on sourcing projects. Um, he's also the legal board member of the UK's National Outsourcing Association, where he works to represent the legal sourcing community and promote best practice. Now, I first worked with Paul Hinton um, when he was data counsel at the London Stock Exchange, um, and with us, he continues to focus on uh, commercial technology and data issues, um, particularly in the financial services area, where he's built up um, a particular specialism in this area. Uh, and I'm particularly delighted to welcome Peter Leatham, uh, Executive Director of PPL. Peter's responsible for all of PPL's licensing of sound recordings across broadcasting online and mobile, and in public places, bars, shops, nightclubs, etc., in the UK. He's also got the overall responsibility for member services and IT, as well as the collection of license fees from over 40 international agreements ensuring that mandated record companies and performers receive those revenues from, their use of, from those uses of their recordings. PPL is at the global forefront of music and repertoire data, and Peter leads PPL's charge, so he's ideally placed to share his experience with us in this area. Peter. Okay, good afternoon. So who are PPL? Um, PPL licenses sound recordings and music videos for use in broadcast, public performance and new media. Uh, I'll just talk about sound recordings today to keep it simple. Um, but essentially, the, uh, the Copyright Designs and Patents Act 1988 defines what a uh, sound recording is and then lets uh, the owner of that sound recording know what rights it has in that, uh, uh, in, in that sound recording. Now, if you're a record company, traditionally you've needed to copy and issue copies to the public if you're going to have your uh, sales of CDs and downloads. But you're also given other rights, which are such as public performance and, and broadcast, and those have been uh, uh, mandated across to, uh, to PPL to manage on their behalf. Now, the general basic principle is that um, you buy a CD for your own domestic use. If you take that CD and use it for a business to uh, either enhance the ambiance or keep your staff entertained or, or, uh, or make a better buying environment for your, uh, uh, for your customers, then uh, you need to obtain a, a license from PPL, which is where we come in and, and facilitate that. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the Copyright Act also uh, defines the right for uh, performers to be paid when, the, uh, when sound recordings embodying their performances are also used. Um, and uh, so essentially what we have here is um, a little graph just showing basically PPL sitting in the middle. From our performers and record companies, we obtain rights and repertoire, and in return we will give them membership and uh, some payments. And on the uh, licensee side, we will uh, license a range of, uh, of different users of sound recordings. In return for them 
providing us payment, but also letting us know what they have used so we can then track back and allow payments to flow back to the companies and performers. Um, and at the bottom there, we have a similar sort of regime whereby we also um, go overseas to uh, many different countries to uh, uh, collect on behalf of companies and performers for the use of their uh, uh, repertoire overseas. Obviously, the UK is very strong in the, in the repertoire it produces and, uh, and is actually very popular throughout the world. So that's also replicated by uh, a series of overseas arrangements as well. And as you see there, um, I've just listed a, a range of the, uh, the sorts of licensees that we have. Um, it's obviously uh, all of the main TV, radio stations, um, and then across uh, an enormous sector of public use, which goes way beyond just obviously the bars, shops, nightclubs and gyms. Okay, um, PPL has many data issues to, to face. I mean, obviously, data is right at the heart of our business. Um, if you take the licensing side, for example, we're licensing uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of venues to, uh, to play music. We're licensing that on an Oracle uh, eBusiness Suite database. It's hosted in Austin, Texas. Um, so there's a range of different things we have across our business. Just for today, though, what I wanted to do is just talk about our, uh, our repertoire database, which is something that's really at the heart of what the uh, music industry is looking at at the moment. And on that, we, uh, we receive about, um, uh, about, or data on about 5,000 new recordings every week that comes into our database. And we have a process whereby we're receiving that from uh, our 5,000 odd record company members. We're then doing uh, our own research on that data as it comes in to, to, to validate it. We're then working with other organizations, such as the Musicians Union, that capture um, uh, a whole lot of release from studio forms when uh, recordings are produced. And then we also publish that data to allow people to claim against it and say if anything they think is wrong. Um, and ultimately what that's allowing PPL to do is to um, identify the repertoire it's managing and licensing for use, which is essential for the repertoire uh, users to know. And then once they've actually used um, uh, various recordings, we're able to identify who the rights holder are and the performers so we know who to, uh, who to pay. What we're also doing as part of that data drop, though, is that from the record companies is that we're also taking care of their mechanical licensing. So every time you're producing um, a CD, you're also having to pay the songwriter and composer. And so again, as part of the, uh, the single drop of data to us, we then pass that information on to uh, PRS that look after the songwriters, composers and publishers, and then they'll take care of uh, the payment arrangements direct with the record companies. The data is also used by um, two trade bodies, BPI in the UK and also IFPI internationally, um, to help identify recordings and products, etc., that are used as part of anti-piracy work that they do, um, both in the UK and around the world. Um, the data also actually is, is, is fairly interesting for a range of uh, other uses as well, so that um, the press are always very keen to get any data around um, uh, artists and they can get a nice photograph of them in the, uh, in the press and a bit of story around it. Just at Christmas we released that um, for Christmas recordings, the, um, the most uh, versions that we have was on uh, Silent Night, where we had 170 versions of Silent Night, uh, closely followed with 150 for uh, White Christmas. Um, and again, there's th those are things that we do from time to time to release because it, it gets people in the press as an awareness. Obviously, it helps support our attempts to go around the country licensing all the public venues, and we do that sort of stuff. And it also flows into then, obviously, not for today's topic, but uh, downstream business of us then actually analysing the playlists that come in. So again, at Christmas, we're identifying that over the last decade, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas was the most played track of the last decade, closely followed by uh, Last Christmas by Wham. I could go on. Um, what I just try to do on this slide here is just identify so what's what's going on, and what's changing. Um, what we have is a is a massively changing uh, market in the UK. Um, they've got obviously the barriers to entry have, have disappeared, so that um, 
you know, we, we use the term record companies, but uh, that's really, really not appropriate in this day and age because there's a whole range of individuals creating their own music. Um, but again, it just means that we're handling, having to handle many more people. Proliferation of versions of recordings, again, we're handling many more recordings. Um, uh, and then sort of running through the whole range of these things, where, you know, again, moving from the physical to the, uh, the digital market, um, the uh, increasingly right to split by territory and different types of use. And then also there's the rapidly increasing volumes. If, if you've got Absolute Radio, for example, using 800 recordings um, over a month, that's one thing to handle with the infrastructure you have and the amount of manual input you can put uh, on top there. But when you move on to services such as Last FM, which are playing millions of recordings, it just means your processes and your data really will suffer unless the whole uh, process is working so much more efficiently. So we have this whole range of um, uh, challenges that the music industry is facing. What we just, uh, I'm going to run through a few gratuitously colourful slides just quickly. Um, what we've just been looking at really is that the, um, uh, the management of data is absolutely is key, really. And um, so what we've been trying to do is build a best-of-breed solution to actually take in, uh, uh, manage the data, uh, data quality processes around it, and then publish that data. We just see it as an overview of what, of what the process we're doing there. We've got a number of inputs from different sources, just trying to make the way in which they deliver that data uh, as easy as possible, different interfaces, different portal ways of doing it, uh, and, how that, and then the, the process that's handled there. Digging down just a bit quicker, um, we've got here again just showing the different input, the different sources of data, the, the way in which the different formats comes in, um, and what we're just trying to do is, is trying to have a, uh, a way in which we manage this data as efficiently as possible, as well as uh, making sure we've got a full audit trail of where it comes from. Um, but one of, the, one of the things you face in the music industry is that um, there are lots of licensing goes on, so actually quite often you've got a range of different companies telling you about the same recording. And obviously, when you're receiving 5,000 a week, you need to make sure that you're not creating duplicates. And so if there are different versions or different things generally there, that's fine, but not if they're actually the same recording, because that then in fact impacts the whole of your, the rest of what you're doing. So again, you've got, then we do quite a bit of data quality work. We don't just trust where it comes from. Um, and then this passes into a master data store. Again, just quickly, the, part of the, the clever bit we've just been developing, which was really um, taking us to a new level, has been the whole, um, we've bought a product called Dataflux, which is a market-leading uh, data quality tool, which we were very pleased to find was very configurable with how we, uh, how we work. Um, but obviously we are trying to make sure that when we receive in from the different sources, we have a, a mandatory set of uh, data requirements that uh, are required to be completed, so we check those are done. There's a certain amount of just standardizing the different uh, way in which, you know, you might have m.a.n or man or different, or different ways of writing that. And then again, you've got the clustering of the, trying to identify if they're actually the same recording. And if they are the same recording, just realizing you might receive different bits of information from those different sources, which allows you to actually make what we call a golden recording, actually take the different sources and perfect what you've got to actually have a richer source of data at the end of that process. Um, and that's something that then moves through into as we say, creating this uh, golden recording without then creating uh, duplicates. So the best of both worlds, really. Um, and really just trying to identify that, again, we have to build up a number of trust levels. So if you've got EMI, say, have produced it as the original copyright owner, um, have then licensed out a track to another uh, company like Ministry of Sound or Epitaph, we just grade when, we, when we're assessing the data and the algorithms, we're just assessing those trust levels and just trying to make sure we, we go through a process which is uh, really making sure we're identifying the correct data and the correct version. That's then replicated on the performer side. Again, you might get a range of performer information that's provided by the different inputs. And again, we're trying to take the best of that and make it into a, a richer source of data. 
And then ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're then trying to publish that data um, to a whole range of sources um, and making sure that it's, it's a, 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 really good, a really good quality. So against those, against those challenges of um, you know, more record companies, more performers, more recordings, more usage, really what we're getting from um, the repertoire database is uh, a sort of a transparent, centralised repertoire that can be shared across the industry and a sort of an effective end-to-end -end, uh, governance model from the originals of the data right through to the licensees. Um, and then you're setting up the, the basis for a, uh, a sort of a shared vocabulary and data dictionary following extensive dialogue with the companies, which is also then setting us up for um, further use of that. Now, the sort of challenges we're facing, many years ago we worked with um, Kemp Little to look at the UK market and the ownership and everything around the structure of the data we have. Uh, and there's actually been in place in the UK a very strong, sensible, albeit two very large lever arch files, um, of uh, understanding as to how it works in the UK. We're now moving on to, um, obviously just working in the, in the UK is not really enough. You know, that we need to be looking at uh, how we can actually take any sort of solutions and take them across the world. And so um, one of the things we've been, uh, we've been looking at is, is really just what's the best way of doing that. Now that does throw up a whole range of, a whole range of issues. And, um, and I think that uh, uh, these are the things that we're currently facing. Now, a lot of them are not that well, uh, not that sophisticated, actually. When you move from uh, uh, very changing models, people just have to get used to that. You have a number of political and, uh, and cultural and social issues, let alone the actual legal issues. Um, but certainly, what we've been trying to look at is if what we're creating and, uh, and, and, and the quality of data and access to data is key to make services thrive and to, uh, and to, generate, uh, and to generate value, um, how do we make this a truly shared service and where do you locate it are some of the issues that come along. How, do you make, how can you make joint ownership model work and what are the funding and governance options? Because everyone's coming, if you look around the world, everyone's got their own databases and at the moment it's a terribly inefficient way of actually trying to uh, look at, have you got the right John Smith or have we got that? What are the identifiers? Trying to match data across, uh, and we, we currently have about 48 different overseas contracts. It's just a very inefficient process and so if we can go to a system where we're all putting our data into one place against certain standards and then drawing data from that, it's going to end up being far more efficient. But in terms of the, uh, for, for, for companies, everyone's looking at, well, actually, I have my own systems at the moment. I have my own database. What does that mean for me if I start putting it, I'll give that up and put it over here? And so as I say, they're not particularly sophisticated um, uh, dialogues at the moment. Uh, I mean, uh, Paul O'Head uh, uh, produced a, uh, a joint software development license for us a little while ago when we were in the initial stages, and it was just ultimately... Um, it, was just, it was just too much for, them, for the whole wider groups to actually agree on. It was just a very much of a journey of trying to take people on that journey. In the meantime, we've carried on just built things and moved on, and so we're moving on to a, a different debate now about how do we actually potentially work and share those things. So those are sort of things that we've got, and um, again, we go through the whole sort of um, uh, standard issues of data security. As I've said before, you know, there are certain things we're holding. How much Madonna and Robbie Williams earn from certain services is very interesting to the wider public. So there's a, there's a whole a range of uh, data security contentions when you're having things hosted off-site. Um, and uh, we go through other things such as where's the best place to locate things? Do we hive it out of PPL? Do we, put it, do we go and put it in a different country? Do we go look at favorable tax regimes? What are the different things we go These are the different things we're faced at the moment. Um, and uh, as I say, at the moment, it's really uh, sort of fairly basic concerns. Also, there, there are been recent discussions that are slightly driven more by the competition angle on the music publishing side, which is the songwriters and composers, 
whereby actually the European Commission have decided that the European market is not working effectively. Um, and so they've had a whole series of, um, uh, of drives to actually group um, uh, a certain amount of that, that part of the industry together. So they've actually put a working group of uh, two major music publishers, three society, collective societies on the uh, author side, and then three uh, well-known uh, retailers, iTunes, Amazon, and Nokia. And that's been a process which has actually been driven by the competition side of actually trying to free up the market. Because if you're iTunes, Amazon, or Nokia, they'll say the current data problems mean that they can't get a single version of the truth. They're told in 27 different member states, uh, different versions, and they all think they should be paid. So it's just a question of... Um, we've started on the process on our side of looking at something very much from a business efficiency point of view. But it also, if you don't get there, as we're seeing on the, on the publisher's side, the, actually the competition authorities can start to become involved and start to try and push you down a, uh, a particular avenue. So again, that's something we've been uh, having a very close dialogue with their own work uh, going on there. And actually, just in the last few days, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization have also um, said that they also want to get into this market. They have a, um, a, a process where they've been dealing with patents and trademarks over a period of time. So suddenly we've um, gone over the last couple of years of, uh, of lots of concerns around all the legal issues and how do we pull this together, where we, we've now got into a place where actually there's lots, lots of different competing ventures going on, which is quite good, really, because it's going to, I think, drive everybody on to, uh, to, to take things forward and, uh, and see where we get to. But obviously, uh, all these things just increase the various um, legal issues that we're facing. So, anyway, that was a very quick run-through, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks very much, Peter. Fantastic set of slides. <clears throat> I must admit, I've got a bit of slide envy. Uh, just to reiterate what Paul and Richard were saying this morning, and also Catherine very much, the extent of IP rights is very uncertain. They overlap. It's not clear exactly what they cover. Um, and as such, we're now in England having to use the full of extent of available weapons. Whenever someone infringes, you're never quite clear whether it's a database right, a database copyright, etc. So you tend to to try and use every single possible claim. There are also local variations, and there's no global consensus on, on what, what rights give you. <clears throat> Therefore, in the absence of contract, enforcing rights can be a very dangerous and risky business and a very expensive one. So therefore, please remember Effort and Jay's very useful um, phraseology in BHB case. Um, if you can avoid relying upon IP rights without contract, do so. Which brings us to today's talk. The ideal, therefore, is to actually have metered access to all of your data via contract. Therefore, you can impose explicit rights on people, um, telling them exactly what they can and can't do, very much as Catherine was saying. You can mirror those rights that IP would have given you, and you can regulate it. You can pretty much do what you like, subject to some competition law um, impact, which I think Rachel's going to talk to you about later. You can also cut off leaks and turn off access to infringers. And the other thing we learnt about from this morning's talk is obviously the power of confidentiality, a common law right, which can be very broad. <clears throat> so make sure wherever your data is provided or given, if it's, for example, on a website, there's a notice saying it's confidential, and you can't do X, Y, or Z with it, and claim all of the IP rights that you would like to have in respect of it. So moving on, I'm just going to briefly go through some of the main key criteria I always look at when drafting licence clauses. They're very basic points, but the point is the more license clauses you look at, the more you realise actually that these basic things are not happening in a lot of licences. So take time to work out exactly what customers need to do and should be allowed to do. It's often not good enough just to say you can use it for internal business purposes because when it comes down to it and you're trying to say, well, what is an internal business purpose? It's not clear to me. It's often not clear to the licensor or the licensee. 
spell out explicitly what you can and can't do. And that often means spending a lot of time sitting down with commercial teams and working out exactly what the data is designed for and exactly what they would like customers to do. So spell out the direct uses and the indirect uses. I can look at it on my screen, but can I print off one copy, for example? So say what may be done and by whom and explicitly reserve any and all other rights. One of the key things to avoid is actually just listing out all of the things you can't do because you'll never do an all-inclusive list. You'll probably miss off something and, and things change. It's better just to say what you can do and have customers come back to you to ask to do other things. Um, also, as the point came out from Paul's talk this morning, do not rely on standard legal carve-outs, things such as Section 50 of the CDPA, which allows you to get data out and do anything reasonably necessary to get your data out of a database. Again, the extent of that right may not be as broad as you need. So when you're licensing for software, make sure with the software provider that you say you have an explicit right to get your data out and to access the software to do so. Moving on, downstream licenses. Most companies nowadays have affiliates and they may need access to data. A lot of companies use subcontractors to provide services. And of course, with certain types of data, you want to actually limit it to specific numbers of users. In each case, set out explicitly what these subcategories of people can and can't do. Make sure it's very clear. Also, make sure the licensor, licensee is the only person you will have a direct contractual nexus with. So if you don't want to rely on your IP rights, make sure that they have to procure and are, and are liable for ensuring compliance by every person they sub-license to. You also may need an explicit right to terminate each sub-licensee explicitly and or seek damages from the sub-licensor directly. And also consider an indemnity from the licensee for anybody else they provide the data to. Why? Well, otherwise you might find you have unlimited claims outside of contract against you. So therefore limit them, pull them into the contract and get an indemnity from the person you're licensing to to prevent claims from outside of contract. Thirdly, post-termination rights. Um, don't assume that just by terminating the contract the license will necessarily terminate. Always explicitly say upon any termination of this agreement the license will also terminate unless you don't want it to. We have a case, Regina Glass Fibre v. Schiller. The main point here is if someone's paid for something and they haven't received the full benefit of it, by the time that the contract terminates, the license may implicitly continue after the end of the, the contract. So therefore, set out exactly what must happen on termination. Do you want the data to be purged from the system or not? Can they keep it for reasonable regulatory purposes? What uses can they have and how? And make sure your survival clause obviously deals with that. And fourthly, for a lot of people who, who regularly uh, license the same kind of data, remember the need for flexibility and change going forwards. So I think Peter's talk highlighted sometimes data can be used in very different ways to the ways that it was originally envisaged. And, and as things develop, you find there are other uses you weren't originally aware of when the data was created. So therefore, we suggest <coughs> you have explicit rights to amend license contracts by notice, um, and you consider keeping it technology neutral. There's no point in saying you can use it on a BlackBerry if, if people then start moving on to another device. You need to describe it in a very neutral way what can be done. Um, also, consider referring to documents as a licensor. If I was a licensee, I would not be um, propounding this, I have to say. But if you're a licensor, consider referring to documents that are incorporated but sit outside the contract. Use order forms. You can change them going forwards. Keep a price list so you can amend prices by notice on a year's time without amending the contract. Have a policy document so if you do find there's a leak or a, a loophole in one of your license clauses, you can put something up that says the license clause should be interpreted, interpreted so that... Um, if, if you draft it correctly into the agreements, it gives you a lot of power to change it as time goes by. And actually, it's, it's concepts that most people in the marketplace are familiar with when licensing data. 
So I'm now going to just briefly summarise some of the trends that we're sort of seeing in the marketplace. <clears throat> One of the key issues I was involved in um, at the Stock Exchange, as Richard mentioned, was licensing of CDOL, which is something, again, that ties in with the uh, identifiers that Catherine was talking about. Effectively, that was a product that was licensed to the market on a, on a free basis for 30, 40 years, maybe more. Uh, and then the exchange decided to actually license that on a commercial basis um, after 2000. When you're doing a project like that, you have to remember that there may be implied licenses, people using data out there in the marketplace without a written agreement in place. Remember, you can only terminate those on reasonable notice. What's reasonable notice? Well, it depends on the circumstances, but the court suggests three to six months is likely to be reasonable. It may be longer if someone's had data for 30 years, so bear that in mind. Before you start the project, IP rights actually become essentially important. You have to look at every single piece of data and work out what IP rights you may have in respect of it. Because remember, without contract, you have rights in REM in IP, enforceable against the world. The stronger the IP rights you have, the faster you can go to actually introducing your licensing scheme. <clears throat> Always think through and, and devise a thorough licensing plan. There's no point in doing this and then three years later having to change everything. You need to think with a 5, 10, 15-year view if you can. Um, beware of competition law. I'm not going to go into much detail, but if, if you are dominant in respect of supply of particular types of data, you may not be able to refuse to supply it to anyone, and you may need to be able to justify your charges. Also, plug leaks. Quite often, data may have been provided freely on a website or given to someone else who's then giving it to other people. You need to work out where these leaks are and work out a tactic for closing them off. As I mentioned, for example, on websites, put up terms and conditions on the website to make people aware that that data is subject to contract, effectively, and confidentiality. Um, and impose contracts on everybody at every stage of the chain distributors, people who receive data directly, people who get it via websites. And finally, again, as Catherine said, it may not be easy in every circumstance, but you have to review and look carefully at every single type of user and decide, can you regulate them? Can you get them under contract? Should you cut them off? Um, if so, how so? On what notice? And do you want to rely on IP rights or do you want to get a contract in place first? So, for example, you might get a contract in place with a distributor and ask them to do the cutting off for you. Second trend we're going to highlight today is sort of vertical and horizontal use of data. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, someone who creates data, licensing it to Reuters, Thomson Reuters, for licensing to a third party. That would be a traditional vertical relationship. We're still seeing a lot of that happening, but I think people are becoming much more aware of the um, power they have in creating data, the money it can give them, um, the value it has. So therefore, we're traditionally seeing some of these data creators actually charging a lot more for use of their data a lot more revenue share deals occurring as well. But the other trend we've been seeing a lot of is actually horizontal aggregation and use of data. So, for example, participants in a market such as, for example, you know, PPL's market globally, realising that actually by sharing data in certain contexts, they can have a much more powerful aggregated and joint database. <clears throat> One of the other examples we've seen is in the insurance market, where, for example, insurers are getting together, anonymising their data and aggregating it so that you can search an area, if you're applying, uh, supplying flood insurance, for example, and see much more accurately how many claims have been made in an area, what the average value was, where they were, etc., than your own data would tell you. The issues with that are that only certain data may be shared, and it probably has to be anonymised, so individual shares and customer details and prices, etc., should be hidden. There are clear rules of the game as well, because if you licence the data on a horizontal basis and share it, um, you might, it might be used for purposes you don't want it to be used for. So before you release it for that purpose, you're going to have to have a very explicit licence saying what can and can't be done. And often you may need to establish a joint venture or a third party to actually do this work for you um, and to realise the value. 
And the last trend I'm going to highlight is uh, commingling and derived data. Well, what do we mean by that? I think Catherine again mentioned it this morning for me, but um, commingling data is essentially making lots of different pieces of data from different providers available at the same time. And actually, when you look at it on the screen, it may be difficult to see what's what and whose is whose. It's just presented on one joint aggregated screen. And deriving data is obviously creating another piece of data using the upstream data to do it. So maybe comparing it against it or comparing it against an algorithm, for example. The problem with this, from an IP perspective, is that if you're just relying on your IP rights, what's coming out of the system may have no resemblance to what went in. So you may not be able to enforce your rights in respect of it under IP at all. You might be able to in confidence, as Richard highlighted earlier. <coughs> um, so the key thing, therefore, is to impose an upstream contract that says exactly what can and can't be done, what can be derived from it, if it can be derived from it, what the license fees should be, what the um, acknowledgements should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a very brief run-through of the issues related to uh, licensing of data. I'm just going to pass it on to my colleague, Paula Hare. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, Paul has focused on the issues that we need to think about in contracts where data is essentially the core asset. It's the substance of what you're buying or selling under the contract. Um, we're going to switch tack now and look at um, contracts where data is effectively ancillary to what you're buying under the contract. So, things like outsourcing contracts, managed services deals, um, and internet-based computing uh, contracts, SaaS deals, uh, and cloud computing type contracts. So just at a very high level, I think there are four um, key factors that uh, we need to bear in mind when we're approaching these contracts, and they affect the, the, the approach that we take to the contract um, and the terms that we need to focus on. Um, first and foremost, the subject matter of the contract, and in particular, the delivery model. Um, and I've categorized this in, in, in two ways. First of all, on-premises contracts, so things like your traditional software license, um, your hardware maintenance contract, um, where the customer is still retaining control of the data. The data resides still within the customer's physical and, and technology environment, and the data issues there are relatively self-confined, um, as opposed to off-premises co contracts, so your outsourcing contracts, managed services deals, um, hosting arrangements, um, SaaS and cloud computing contracts, where um, you're effectively, as a customer, handing over your data to a third party and putting it into a third party's um, uh, environment. Uh, secondly, the nature of the data, if it's personal data, then that calls into play um, uh, uh, data protection and privacy legislation. If it's financial and sales data, then that can give rise to particular types of risk, um, potentially lost revenue, um, or it may just be commercially sensitive data, data that you don't want your competitor um, getting a hold of. Um, the third variable is the industry sector, because um, clearly that will bring into, into play uh, sector-specific regulation. Um, so in the UK, we have uh, the financial services uh, uh, sector, which is sector-specific regu regulation. Um, in, in the US, um, the healthcare industry has its own regulation. Um, and in certain parts of Europe, um, legal process outsourcing can be curtailed by um, what you can and can't do with, uh, with client data in terms of handing that on to a third party. Um, and then finally, geographic scope, because again, that is going to bring into play um, local, uh, local legislation. So... This afternoon, um, I just want to focus on two key areas, and I'm looking at this in particular in relation to off-premises contracts. Um, first of all, data security, data protection, and confidentiality. Um, and secondly, liability and, and risk allocation, how you go about allocating risk for data-related losses. Um, and in particular, I just want to look at how the regulatory approach um, here is changing, as well as how market practice is developing, particularly in terms of risk allocation um, in these data-type contracts. 
So, um, the first area is data security issues in the context of um, off-premises contracts, contracts where you're um, or a customer is appointing a third party to handle, process, or st store personal data um, on its behalf. Um, and I want to do this by looking at the, um, the recent FSA investigation and findings um, uh, in relation to a data security incident involving one of uh, Zurich Insurance UK's outsourcing service providers. Um, and I've chosen this uh, because I think it provides a really good insight um, into the issues that regulators expect us to address in our contracts and the standards that, re that regulators expect us to adhere to um, in these contracts. Um, I think the fact that this is uh, financial services specific um, is, is, is irrelevant, frankly. I think um, other regulators, including in particular the ICO, are going to expect very similar standards to, um, to be adhered to uh, in other um, off-premises contracts. So very briefly, the facts. Um, this was an outsourcing by... Uh, Zurich Insurance UK of certain data processing activities to um, one of its uh, South African subsidiaries. Um, the South African subsidiary sub, uh, appointed a number of subcontractors. One of those subcontractors lost um, a, a number of backup tapes in transit between the data centre and the data storage environment. Um, the, uh, the tapes were unencrypted. Um, they contained the details of financial details of about 46,000 uh, customers. Um, and to make matters worse, the, uh, the customer, Zurich Insurance UK, wasn't informed um, until over 12 months after the incident actually uh, occurred. Um, and the FSA fined uh, Zurich Insurance UK uh, to the tune of 2.3 million, which I think is the, um, is the largest fine that's been imposed so far for these types of data security breaches. Um, so what were the FSA's findings? Well, first of all, good news for the lawyers. Um, the contract terms were, were basically given a clean bill of health. Um, so they contained the usual reps and warranties um, around data protection compliance. They had fairly robust audit rights. Um, and there was an, an express obligation uh, in the contract for the, for the supplier to follow documented security procedures. And those security procedures included uh, an obligation to encrypt the data. So the problems didn't lie with the contract. The problems lay with how the contract was implemented um, and managed by the parties. And there were two key problems here. First of all, inadequate oversight arrangements, um, and that manifested itself in a couple of ways. Uh, there was no monitoring or checking of the service provider's compliance with its contractual obligations. So the contractual obligations were there, but the, the customer in this case didn't take any steps to, to check whether these were being adhered to, whether the data was being encrypted. Um, the second key, uh, key issue in relation to the oversight arrangements was the fact that there was a lack of oversight with the service provider's own supply chain arrangements. So the service provider, the South African subsidiary, had appointed a subcontractor uh, without the knowledge or consent of the customer. Um, that subcontractor had in turn subbed out uh, further storage activities um, without the knowledge either of the customer or the service provider. So there was a complete lack of um, understanding and control about how that supply chain was operating. The second key finding was um, inadequate governance and reporting requirements. So data security was initially um, on the agenda of the, the monthly service management meetings. Um, not surprisingly, it, it played second fiddle to, to um, more urgent day-to-day -day operational issues, issues around the service levels, um, and gradually it slipped off the agenda altogether. Um, and, and at some later point, those service management meetings stopped happening altogether. Um, and the FSA thought that, that was a very a, a key factor in the customer not becoming aware of the issue um, for, over, uh, for over a year. So 
what, what are the implications for um, our outsourcing contracts and other off-premises contracts? Well, I think, first of all, it's a very important reminder um, of the, uh, the need to have adequate and robust audit provisions in the contract. Um, I think it's also an important, uh, an important reminder of the fact that we need to ensure that those audit rights extend not only to the ser service provider, but down the chain, down the, the, the service provider supply chain to its key subcontractors, basically anyone that is processing or handling that personal data. Um, the regulators will expect you to have a direct ability to check whether they're complying with, um, with the security procedures and security standards. Um, the other point is it's all very well having audit rights. Um, the regulators are saying that you need to exercise these on a regular basis. Um, typically, in, 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 a, in a typical SaaS or cloud computing contract, the service provider will seek to limit the circumstances in which you can, um, you can exercise or trigger those audit rights to circumstances where you suspect there's been a breach. The, the regulators here are saying that's too late. You need to check this on a proactive and an ongoing basis. And just being able to trigger your, your audit rights um, where you suspect the breach uh, is not sufficient. Um, the second uh, area of learning here, I guess, is the importance of, of terms to ensure you retain control over the service provider's um, supply chain. So at a very basic level, that means having um, approval rights over the, the, the subcontractors that they use, and most contracts will have that. Um, more importantly, perhaps, is as part of any appro approval process, um, uh, if you're approving a subcontractor, you need to check out um, and get, get clarity around um, those, those subcontractors' security processes, the, the, the security procedures, whether that's by way of audit, whether it's by way of some independent report um, from, from a third-party uh, agency that they use, telling you what their, um, their security processes are and making sure that those security processes are adequate. Um, it also demonstrates the inclusion of appropriate governance structures and reporting lines within the contract. I think quite often with, with, with these contracts, um, uh, nothing more than lip services paid to the governance arrangements um, and we assume that these governance arrangements are going to naturally evolve as the parties start working together. I think we need to, as lawyers, make, take a much more proactive stance in terms of shaping those governance structures, making sure that data security um, is an agenda item on at least one of the governance uh, bodies. Um, the FSA is also uh, recommending that there is a clear escalation process set out in the contract so that if there are any high-severity um, high security incidents, they get um, referred to the customer immediately. So the contract needs to, to contain a clear escalation process. And finally, it's a reminder of the importance of, of following terms. It's all very well um, negotiating these terms into the contract, um, uh, but actually it, it reminds us of the importance of um, carrying out regular audits uh, of the security processes, um, checking out the supply chain, and making sure that the governance meetings are happening as planned. Um, and increasingly, in the contracts that I've been involved in, uh, I'm seeing customers, because um, quite often these things aren't done, so customers are imposing um, service levels and, and actually applying a, a financial incentive around ensuring that they receive these regular audit reports, that these regular governance meetings do happen. Um, so there's effectively a service credit attached to um, and a, a sting in the tail for the supplier if these things aren't, um, uh, aren't provided. So the, the second area that I just want to um, focus on this afternoon is liability and risk allocation for data-related losses in these um, off-premises type contracts. Um, and in preparing for this talk, I had a quick um, uh, search on the internet to see what sort of press coverage was out there. Um, and I came across um, a headline from the trade press um, relating to um, a, a, cloud, uh, a conference that was held by the cloud providers around this time last year. 
Um, and not surprisingly, they were saying that um, they weren't going to accept any liability. Cloud providers wouldn't accept any liability for data-related losses. Um, and I think it, it demonstrates uh, how far the, or the fact that the market has moved in a relatively short period of time, um, in that certainly in the, the, the contracts that I've been involved in, most service providers will now accept some degree of liability or some degree of risk um, for data-related losses. Um, I'm conscious that that's a gross generalization, um, and I'm sure there are certain service providers who will take um, a, a firm stance in terms of whether they accept liability, but generally the market seems to be moving towards um, service providers set, accepting some degree of liability for data losses. Um, I think the, the other preliminary point I want to mention here is the fact that the traditional approach to um, uh, risk allocation or, or liability for loss of data where it's, it's all or nothing, either there's a blanket exclusion um, of, of lost data or from the customer side, the, the exclusion of lost data comes out of the contract altogether. Um, I think that's quite a crude approach and actually what is increasingly happening is that the parties are, are, are applying a more analytical approach, identifying the various types, the various heads of loss that can arise in relation to data and then allocating those particular losses based on who's um, uh, better placed to, to, to bear that loss. So very briefly running through the, the types of data loss, first and foremost we have um, probably the most obvious loss which is the costs of recreating lost data. Um, and this will very much depend on who is responsible for backup. If the, if the service provider is, is, is providing backup uh, service as well, then typically the, the, the service provider will accept some degree of, of, of risk in terms of paying for the man time of rekeying, reconstituting that data. It's probably going to be subject to a cap, but most service providers, I think, will, will accept that. I think the real issue here is around corrupted data. Um, with with, with, with uh, lost data, you can go back to the latest, the latest backup and backup from that, but actually with corrupted data, um, the corruption may have happened much earlier in the process, so going back to the, the latest backup tape is not enough, and you may well have to go back to a much earlier tape and, uh, uh, first of all, identify where the point of corruption occurred and then fix the rest of the data going forward. Um, and that's actually a much more significant cost uh, than, than just um, backing, backing up from the, from the last available backup or recreating from the last available backup. The second area is regulatory fines. Um, and again, I think uh, many service providers will accept liability uh, in relation to um, regulatory fines that are imposed on you as a result of their breach. So they're not going to give you a guarantee that the, the, the environment will be 100% secure, and I think customers accept that. Where, where they um, will accept liability is where um, a regulatory fine is imposed as a result of their failure to follow um, clearly documented security procedures. I think from the supplier perspective, a key point here to bear in mind is the, um, the need to impose um, a contractual duty to, um, to mitigate. It's important partly because quite often these are backed up by way of indemnity, which may not, um, may not impose a, a, a duty to mitigate. But actually, probably more importantly, the, um, the FSA and the regulators will significantly reduce um, the amount of any fine. So in the Zurich insurance case, that fine was reduced by, um, by 30%. It would have been 3.25 million had um, the, the, the customer in that case not cooperated fully with the, with the FSA, disclosed the results of their internal investigation to the FSA. So from a supplier perspective, I think it's important to actually contractualize those obligations because it can have a significant uh, impact on um, the amount for which you could be liable. A related cost then is, um, is the, the investigation and rectification costs if there is a data security breach. And I know Andrew is going to look at this in more detail um, uh, in his session this afternoon. 
But very briefly, if we take, um, if we take a typical example of, of the loss of personal data, um, there are a number of steps that customers will generally have to take. First of all, they'll have to notify the, the customers uh, uh, affected. Um, clearly, man time involved in that. Um, typically, they will set up a dedicated support line to take calls back from the customers affected. Um, again, a man time associated with that. Uh, and quite often, where it's financial data, the customer will be required by the regulator to, regulator to take out um, fraud monitoring services and credit monitoring services, again, a significant cost. And if you're talking about tens of thousands of records, you're quite, quite quickly talking about several million pounds, potentially, in terms of, of rectification um, and investigation costs. And then I think we're into um, more nebulous types of loss, reputational damage, other financial losses. Um, they may well be direct uh, under, under, under English law, um, but typically it's, it's much more uh, difficult to, um, to get suppliers to accept liability for those types of more nebulous loss. And actually, they're very, very difficult to quantify from, uh, from a customer perspective. Uh, the final couple of points I just wanted to mention um, were uh, around, first of all, thinking about the, um, the effect of force majeure provisions. Quite often we assume force majeure is a boilerplate provision, um, but we need to think about this particularly in the context of internet-based um, services. So, you know, the, the, the traditional exclusions of, um, uh, of liability, um, uh, for example, in relation to acts of sabotage, when you translate that into um, the internet world, what you're actually potentially talking about are denial of service attacks. And again, we need to think about how those, force, those relief provisions in, in, in relation to force majeure tie in with the supplier's obligations around taking security uh, 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 steps to, um, to prevent denial of service attacks. Um, and the final point, I think, and I think this applies for suppliers and, uh, and customers, is understanding uh, insurance cover. And this needs to be looked at in the, in, in the overall context of allocating risk for these types of, of data loss. Um, and I mention this because, I, again, part of the, 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 the research for this talk, I came across um, a case in the U.S., a university in the U.S., um, which suffered a very similar data security incident to, um, to Zurich Insurance. Um, essentially, they lost some, um, some customer data, a lot of customer data in transit. It was a, a courier that lost it. Um, they couldn't claim against the courier, A, because the courier was too small, B, because, uh, because of the exclusions in the contract. Um, they sought to rely on their insurance cover and found that the, their PI cover applied to tangible property, um, uh, so clearly it didn't apply to data. Um, and there was also an exclusion of, of liability in relation to um, property damaged in transit or lost in transit, which is exactly what had happened here. So I think the point is that, it, it, you know, that when you're allocating these risks and you're, when you're, when you're um, determining who is better placed to, to accept these risks, I think you need to look at the, the wider insurance um, position as well.